Hello, Trauma Thrivers. Welcome, welcome to another week. And I'm delighted to be joined, of course, by Mel. Uh, but tonight we're joined by Victoria and Liz. And I don't know who wants to go first in introducing themselves. Victoria, shall we let you uh, say a little bit about who you are and why you're with us tonight, thankfully? Yes, hello everybody and thank you for inviting me to this exciting conversation about this very important topic. So I am Victoria Seed and I help families who are affected by a loved one's problem drinking or drug use. I've done this work for a long time. Um, and, you know, I started off this work really um, as a result of getting expelled from school when I was 15 years old. Um, ended <laughs> for a very silly mistake. Um, and I realized before that even that I wanted to work with children and families and that's where my career started so I am a substance misuse practitioner I've worked in prisons NHS third sector organizations and I have a service now called the Vesta approach um, as well so thank you brilliant well lovely to have you here and thank you so much for joining us really great of you and Liz you're back you decided to come back for a second go <laughs> thanks for letting me have a second go the first was so brilliant. How could we not? Oh, <laughs> uh, you're too kind. Thank you very much. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, uh, my name's Liz Martin. Uh, lovely to be with all three of you, and especially Victoria as well, um, who I've never met before until now. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist and a EFT practitioner, um, fairly newly qualified as an EFT practitioner. And I have been uh, working in the field of addiction, uh, et cetera, since um, 2004. So I specialize in addiction, including alcoholism, childhood trauma, codependency, eating disorders, and work with not only individuals, but family members as well. Uh, which is why you know it's really a fantastic subject this evening, and I've I've worked across all uh, modalities as well. It was really interesting when you said Victorian prisons. I worked for many years in prisons as well. I've worked in sort of and also, you know, in the private sector as well. Um, and I'm in private practice now and have been uh, for about twelve years. So uh, yeah. Just delighted to be here again. Amazing for you to be here because obviously we met, didn't we, in 2004, was it? Uh, it may have been, but I know we started working together properly in 2010. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. it feels like it was 2004. <laughs> and I say that with all respect, saying feels like I've known you longer than 11 years but yeah, absolutely we we worked a lot didn't we on the addiction treatment program at the Priory right. hospital in Roehampton together we did and I worked on the family program as well as the addiction treatment program you did you did and that's why we're here tonight all four of us to talk about families and addiction and Mel I know that you did a great um, video earlier and said a little bit about this month and I wonder for those people that don't know what this month is whether you might be able to share with us why we're doing this in this month 
Absolutely. Um, hello, everyone. So lovely to be here again with you all. Um, so this is, uh, and you're apparently supposed to use that, say, hashtag recovery month. I heard you say that earlier. I thought... Use the hashtag when they talk about it. So it is recovery month and um, September is a month that has been dedicated to celebrating the the wins and the gains of people that are in recovery um, and it's also a month where um, the people that have, have kind of coined this um, this month as recovery month uh, the organization that have done that um, that they kind of get quite busy and sharing kind of new evidence-based treatments um, what's going on within the world of recovery um, so it really is about raising awareness destigmatizing and celebrating people that are in recovery so it's it's really lovely it's a really great thing to do you know the same way that we do with with any kind of you know every sort of I, I know that there's debate about whether addiction is an illness or not so I, I'm not getting into that debate but you know we have lots of we have lots of um you know awareness days for for illnesses or for mental health or or that sort of thing and I just think it's really 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 lovely that we can celebrate um and raise awareness of recovery in the same way that we do anything else yeah and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's recovery month on addiction. But I know that we often talk about, and I suppose I'm starting with this point, about what is recovery from addiction? And is it recovery from addiction? Or is it recovery from trauma? You know, and the link between trauma and addiction. And I wonder whether we could just start off maybe with our professional experiences on how those two are interlinked and then maybe move into our personal experiences afterwards. Liz, do you want to go first on this one? Yes. Um, so in terms of addiction and trauma and is there a link, um, my professional experience is that of all the clients that I've worked with you know, that have addiction issues, um, I've yet to come across a client that doesn't have some form of trauma in their history. And that's, that's the truth. That's not to say that everyone that suffered trauma uh, becomes an addict, and I don't mean that at all, but certainly everybody that I have dealt with you know, over, over the years, um, and they, they most definitely have trauma when you start to sort of, you know, yeah. Um, look look into that and explore explore that and um, so that that's most definitely that's been my experience anyway um, and I think with addiction um, if there is a you know uh, issues around uh, a substance or behaviour you can't you have to for me anyway that has to be stabilised there has to be neutral there has to be no more acting out around that in order to then deal with the trauma that's always going to be there. Um, yeah, and that trauma can act as a trigger into addictive behaviour, uh, be it a substance of behaviour, because it's just about numbing, you know, numbing those feelings um, that are too overwhelming or too painful. So, yeah, that, that's what I take professionally. Okay, cool. <laughs> Victoria, would, where, where are you at with that? Yeah, I agree 
with Liz, you know, I, 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 like I say, I started off my career working with vendors. So I was working with juvenile, um, uh, what do we call them then? Learners. I was teaching at the time <laughs> when I was 23. Um, and then I moved over to the substance misuse team because uh, the Youth Justice Board back then put a lot of money into prisons. Um, and I was luckily, I was luckily part of building a new service in the in the young offenders institution I was in, and you saw the young people coming in and out. The recidivism rate was about seventy percent, so they were going out and coming back in seventy percent of the time. Um, and and I, I once I started doing the substance misuse work back in two thousand and five, I could see the trauma. I could see the intergenerational substance use. I could see that you know we were only touching the surface. You'd get young people coming in that were in for four months. They used to say four do two, so they were getting four month sentences and serving two. So in that time, really, the work was around harm minimization. It was around right. Well. You know, if you're going to go out and smoke weed and snort lines of cocaine and what have you, you've got to do it in the safest way possible to prevent your bloodborne viruses and things. But I saw that then. And what I realised then was that in order for us to really make a difference as professionals with people, we had to work with the whole family. Um, and when I started doing that um, in my next role, so I worked with children of alcoholics and then whole family support in an award-winning service and i was again fortunate enough to set that up in a service um, i realized that doing that was really really making a difference to the families because we weren't just treating an individual we were treating the children yeah. and we were treating the uh, affected family members as well and the best thing we did when i went back to that service on a cons consultancy project was introduce adverse childhood experiences routine inquiry so we were working with parents um and they were you know really poorly people in some cases but nobody was asking them what what had happened to them yeah. um so like liz said you kind of go into right let's problem solve let's get you stable from your substances and that's yeah. what we were all trained to do we? let's head for abstinence let's focus yeah. on that yeah uh, but we weren't like asking the other questions were we um so interestingly like when we started asking that and it was tough because it was tough for prof professionals where i'm a practitioner i'm not a therapist yeah so my job is a bit before that liz was just saying is kind of doing the bit before you do in your roles because i get them stabilized i'm a drug and alcohol practitioner i will work with individuals and families to get them from ca chaos to calm and then once that, that trauma comes to the surface and i'm like okay go and get some help from lou and melanie and liz because that's gonna really work with that at depth and the aces routine inquiry really helped us and the people to see why they were using the substances and yeah. so many of those parents said to us i am so glad you've helped me realize this because nobody has ever asked me I think you're so spot on and I for anybody listening or watching this um, ACEs an adverse childhood experience scale you can actually Google and you know there are there is some negative press around it but from what I uh, have discovered for myself and I think Mel agrees 
is that it can be a real light bulb moment for people of kind of coming out of that addiction. You know, I'm an addict. There's kind of something wrong with me and pathologizing that we do really badly sometimes or some people do to what happened to you. And the ACEs help bridge that, don't they? Because you can look at events and things that have gone on in your life and your neurophysiology and go, oh, well, actually, maybe there isn't something really that wrong with me. It's actually what's happened to me that's had the effect. Exactly what I was going to say. I'm so sorry to cut in there, but that that for me just... I almost feel quite emotional when I think about that, you know, is when you see somebody that's in active addiction that's causing themselves so much harm, I, I want to inquire what's happened. What's happened? What yeah. happened to you? Not, you know, judging them in, but what happened to you? Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. where are you with it all? Well, you know, my, my take on it professionally and personally, but what I know we're talking professionally at the moment is that, you know, addiction is a symptom of trauma. Um, addiction is a manifestation of the pain that we hold inside of us as the result of trauma. It is a maladaptive coping mechanism that, um, that people turn to as a way of numbing, avoiding, and, and coping with reality, with a, with a reality that is too painful. Um, I also, Victoria, I through doing some intervention work. Um, I'm a trained interventionist as well. Um, sometimes I'm in at the beginning of that process. And, you know, what happens a lot of the time is you go into the family. And as soon as you're in the family, you can see why you have this addictive person. Um, you know, instantly you see the family dynamic, you see where the trauma is coming from. And this isn't about me saying, you know, your family is effed up or, you know, you're, you're, you're all a load of rubbish or anything like that. But this is, this is really about being able to take that professional bird's eye view of the situation where you can say exactly this, what you were just saying, this is what's happened to you. No wonder, no wonder you have had to turn to something to avoid, to numb, to, to escape. Um, and you, you see those dynamics at play in front of you, like Victoria, you were saying, when you're in there kind of on, at, at the beginning of it. Um, so yeah, professionally, that, that's where I come from. And I come very much from the point of view that, you know, addiction is, um, recovery into addiction is, needs to be done with love and compassion. Um, and an understanding of what is happening for that person internally. Yeah. And what's happening, thanks, Mel, within the system too, because I, I love the words from chaos to calm that you use, Victoria, which is, you know, if we've been in an intergeneration or a family system where, you know, somebody has been acting out or has been in chaos or dysregulated, which trauma survivors often are and so are addicts there is no calm is there it is all dysregulated and actually what what we all need whether we've got trauma or addictions is a form of re-regulating and coming into our bodies and our nervous systems and I'm guessing that none of us came to this work or with our own and I, I'm not sure about you, Victoria, but our own addictive processes and our own trauma without 
a slightly chaotic or sometimes dysfunctional background in some way. So I just wonder whether it might be an opportune moment to bring in some of our personal stories of addiction and trauma and the family. And Victoria, what was your experience within your own Um, family system? Within my own family, I'm I'm careful to discuss this really because they're kind of still around. But and with as much respect as possible, I was brought up in a family that was pretty working class, and there was like a work hard, play hard mentality really. So I was brought up with a lot of alcohol around me it was really normalized um you know i was allowed to go out and drink when i was 13 and i did i was clubbing when i was 14 you know and uh, but i was really naive um hence the reason why i was excluded from school for buying acid on the school field which my i had was the first time i had ever been involved in any substances in my life and everyone was doing it so i just did it you know i was stupid um, but but going through that process myself, where I was penalised, where I was uh, well, I could have been criminalised. Thankfully, I, I wasn't. Um, you know, it was it was pretty traumatic, and it's only really in recent years that I've gone back to that and thought that's driven me to do this work subconsciously because I thought it was separate and it wasn't. But like I say, I always wanted to work with children and families and. Part of the reason for that is because there was chaos in my family. You know, it, it was an angry household. Um, my, I don't have a relationship with my mum anymore. She's narcissistic. I cut. I had to cut off from her um, eight years ago when my daughter was born. So, so you know, all of that drives me to do this work. But I've got to be careful myself as well when I'm working with uh, my clients. You know, where you get that um, client that re- might remind me of my mom and things like that. Um, but yeah, that that really piqued my interest in um, doing the work I do. And I have got family members who, one of whom has had um, an alcohol issue and one who currently has a drug issue. Right. Um, so so yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot going on. And, you know, it's not surprising, is it? There's one in five children affected by somebody else's problem drug or alcohol alcohol use on one in ten adults i, I so, thought it was higher than that actually than one in five funnily enough I, I i think that figure's quite low yeah that came from NACOA, you know the national association for the children of alcoholics so it is alcohol based so if we brought drugs into it as well it would be um probably probably more but and and that isn't and you'll notice my use of language there it's not necessarily addiction that's problem drug and alcohol use because i think a lot of people don't associate with that word addict or addiction especially families when there's denial or individuals when there's denial so um yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of problems that can be caused can't there Uh, around uh drugs and alcohol um yeah that might not even reach what we will perceive addiction to be yeah and even you know maybe other dependencies that aren't just drugs and alcohol too um but that might numb us out or zone us out or make us unavailable as parents or not really present for our children Mm -hmm. if that makes sense you know there are other things too aren't there that that yeah disconnect us from ourselves and therefore if we're disconnected from ourselves we can't really connect and be that regulator but yeah Liz 
<laughs> okay, so what was the question again? I'm laughing. Well, just about yeah. your own family experience, really, about, you know, how, how it affected you. And I know, you know, this is not a blame and a shame session, is it? This is oh, just honestly of... Yeah you know, how it is and, and yeah, uh, absolutely it affected us really. Yeah, for sure. And I think, and it's safe to say just before I sort of give a very brief where I've come from, for me anyway, uh, it's a, a sort of a bit of a lifetime's journey, sort of uncovering more and more, <laughs> you know, the more time goes on, the more work I do in myself, the more I discover and I think, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, my, my family history, yeah, uh, alcoholism in the family, um, um, a lot of uh, negativity, uh, violence, um, um, abuse, um, yeah, and just, yeah, and just, you know, growing up, and I, I, again, I, I what Victoria was saying, you sort of need to be slightly careful what, what I say, obviously, because some of my family are still around. Mind you, I don't think that I'm a member of this group, so it won't be fine. <laughs> and again, it's not blame, it's just, you know, bless them. I, you know, I had, my caregivers were very damaged individuals, you know, who also had, came from very violent alcoholic backgrounds. There was, you know, abuse there. There was all sorts of stuff. And it was just, you know, so I... You know, I couldn't be or do or turn out to be anything other than what what I was because of the environment that I grew up in, really. And um, yeah, and you know, like Victoria was saying, you know, I I turned to, uh, in fact, one of the first things I turned to was food. You know, I was only eleven at the time. Um, then thirteen, it was alcohol. Thirteen, fourteen, and then you know, swore I'd never used drugs, but then did use drugs when I was like thirty two and. You know, and throughout that time as well, my my choices were not necessarily the most helpful. Even when it came to the person I decided I was going to marry, you know, I have uh, adult children now, um, bringing them into an environment. Again, you know, I was an active alcoholism and addiction, as was their father. And he still is, you know, I'm in recovery now. But, you know, bringing my kids up in that environment, um, and then we split up when they were really young and you know talking about that sort of generational thing uh, you know I of course I've passed on things to my kids um, you know and my kids are adults all addicts uh, one thank goodness is in you know recovery um, two of them have been um, caught up in the criminal justice system a lot you know, so there's all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, and I think for me, and it's just personally, the more I learn, there's almost a bit of me that thinks, oh, geez, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest, because it's yeah. like, oh, shit, you know. Yeah. And my, you know, and that this ongoing work is coming to terms with, okay, that's what I did. That's what I was then. I was doing my best. I was very, very unwell, really, really unwell. And, um, you know, it's it, the main thing I can do is just 
continue to keep working on me and amending that and making sure that, you know, what I'm putting out to the universe today without sounding too happy is, is the right, is the right thing. You know, there's much more, I mean, my, you know, their um, parental side of um, my, my kids, um, you know, they're um, uh, Jewish immigrants. So you can imagine the generational trauma that's there mm-hmm. without even, you know, I mean, just horrific. Yeah. Horrific, you know, and then yeah. my side of the family are sort of, you know, Irish potato famine. It's, <laughs> so, you know, so yeah. There's a lot Stop going on. Yeah. 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 And so what I love is that, you know, you, you've consistently done the work on yourself, Liz, ever since I've known you and, you know, way before that too. And what I want to say to anybody listening who is still maybe in their active addiction or in trying to get into recovery or it's never too late to do the work, you know, and everything that we learn and everything that we grow and develop, you can become that transitional character then of the family who doesn't pass it down or starts to change the trauma timeline generationally. Absolutely. Just quickly, you know, I, I know me being in recovery for, gosh, it's coming up for 25 years. Wow. Exactly why one of my kids has actually got into recovery. And they all know about it, you know, and another one is in and out. He's sort of, you know, sorry, I shouldn't say what sex they are. Um, thankfully, they've not got the same surname as me, so nobody has any idea who they are. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and, but again, there is that, there is that knock-on effect. Yeah. I don't need to ram it down the throat, but they see an example of potentially and all that recovery, well, I say all that recovery is given that, you know, what it does is that you, it gives you an opportunity to become the person that you're, you're at, you actually are. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Lovely. Thank you. Not at all. Mel? Probably over there, sorry. Not at all, it's not at all. Not, no, I agree. <laughs> Um, so I think I, I have been on, on both sides of, um, of being the, the impacted and the impactor, um, of addiction within families. And I would say that, you know, my, my childhood wasn't, I wasn't brought up in a, in a household where there was, you know, alcoholism or addiction in the, in the kind of conventional sense that, that we, (coughs) talk about it in but but there was probably certainly other other ways um so you know my I talk when I I talk about families um in addiction and and families in recovery I talk very much from the point of view of the person that was addicted and the person that brought the impact of their addiction into the family system Um, you know my addiction was horrendous um you know it took me to well it took me to the streets you know I ended up homeless um in my addiction and you know I was I was that and and I I refer to myself as an addict because I'm comfortable doing that but you know I was the addict that you know would turn up in police cars in blackouts at my mum's door who had to have the police call because I was missing you know all of those all of those things and you know, what I saw was the people that loved me the most, that cared about me the most in so much pain. And yet, you know, this is why I, 
this is how, how I understand, you know, recovery addiction is just is so difficult to get out of because even when I saw the pain that I was that my addiction was causing, I still couldn't stop. Um, you know, and that for me was something that it took me a really long time to get my head around. And one of the things that I really want to say here, and I you'll notice that I corrected myself a little bit there, is because um, you know. I, I, I always try and when I refer to the pain that, that was brought to my family and that the harm that was brought to my family through my addiction, I'm very careful not to use the word I um, because it wasn't me, it was my addiction. Um, and I think that it's when I work with clients, I'm very, I make sure that they understand that there is a difference between their authentic selves and their addict selves, um, because it's really easy to come into recovery and be left with the shame um, and the guilt and the remorse. And coming into recovery is about taking ownership and accountability and responsibility for things that happened. But recovery is also about relinquishing shame and breaking stigma. Um, and one of the things that you know is really important to me to get across is that it wasn't me, it was something, it was the pain within me that was causing that behavior. Um, and um, I, I, I relinquish that shame when I talk in that way. So, um, but yes, I, I come very much from the side of seeing the impact um, that my addiction had on, on those that loved me the most. Thank you for that. And I agree with you. I think it's always about parts, isn't it? And the part of us, the, the I, the identity is much bigger than the addiction. The addictive part is an aspect, but it's a kind of part that is running away or flighting from what the internal battle is and, and, and what's going on really, isn't it? So um, Sorry, Liz, I, one of the things I really wanted to say here as well was that um, I was sort of trying to get recovery for, for a long time, um, probably for about 15 years before I actually got any kind of length of, of re recovery behind me. And actually, my mum's recovery started before mine did. And I, this is why I'm very passionate about working with the family system is because quite often recovery starts with the person that isn't addicted before it goes, it, it, it can, it can happen that way. And I think that's a message that I really want to pervade this evening is that it can absolutely happen that way. Yeah. And, and I, I thank you for that. That's a, it's interesting because what it brings up for me is that you know, with addiction throughout my my family and um, particularly my stepfather, you know, and uh, taking him to 12-step meetings and nursing him and looking after him and doing all of those lovely codependent things that we do, you know, it wasn't until really about three or four years later that I even realized that I had a problem. <laughs> you know, so he became the catalyst for me, busy trying to get him into treatment and into rehabs and onto planes and off to AA meetings, you know. Um, so he's no longer with us, sadly. But I mean, yeah, I thank him getting treatment in a way and seeing his 
alcoholism, which was absolutely tragic. I mean, tragic, um, was one of the big eye openers for me. So somehow the family interlinks of, of actually seeing it in your face as you your sons for you, Liz, have a bit of a, a wake up moment of we've either got to face this and deal with it or it's going to bring us down or continue. So for anybody listening that's um, either in addiction or they've got it in their family or or something similar, they can relate to us. Where would we say to them, each of us, to start? How do we help? How do we, you know, how, first of all, maybe let's start with how do we, can we do the codependent bit first? How do we help rather than ourselves? How do we help a family member first? Ooh. I would say. Liz, go on. You yeah, go. no, sorry. Go if you want, Victoria, if you want to start. Sorry, just when you said that, is that okay? Go, just go, when you said. Just when you said that, how do we help the family member? My immediate response to that is, start with me. It has, has to begin with me. That's the first thing that comes up for me because, yeah, it is the uh, family members. This is my own personal experience. My, my great obsession was to try and help my sons prevent them from going through what I'd gone through. Um, to try and make them see the mistakes that I had made and had trying to learn from it. And this was before I then found recovery from codependence or that, dare I say, I'm bringing the 12 step thing, Al-Anon. You know, that pushed me towards Al-Anon. It also pushed me, funnily enough, even although I was in recovery, but I wasn't in recovery from that aspect. And I ended up taking myself off to the meadows in Arizona do some work. Liz, for those people listening that don't know potentially what the Meadows is or Al-Anon or Coda or could you explain a little bit about what those mean? Yes, sorry. Um, no, don't worry. Al-Anon is a 12-step group for family members or loved ones who have um whose family member or loved one is in, has a problem with drinking or is an alcoholic or, yeah. And it's a support group and it's free um, where you can meet other like-minded family members who are struggling with someone else's problematic drinking or alcoholism. And um, it's, yeah, I, I, Personally, I found it, it was a, an amazing lifeline. Codependency for me was me trying to go to any lengths to try and fix it, control it, cure it, <laughs> all of that stuff. Um, trying to get someone else well, you know, stop them from dying, essentially. That's, that's, that's really what I was trying to do. And, um, and it, it actually, it, the way it was playing out for me was that my whole life basically came to a grounding halt because my whole, my absolute, you know, sort of, um, how would you say, my primary focus was on saving my sons. That's that's what it essentially had become. And, uh, and I was becoming more and more unwell. 
So I was becoming really, um, yeah, as unwell as they were, really, because yeah, it, it was almost like they'd become my my obsession, my addiction in a way. So that's what codependency is, and that from that respect, I don't Thank know. Helps. Yeah, that massively helps. Thank you so much. Victoria, what are your thoughts on where to go for help? It, I mean, um, uh, we might have some family members sat listening here going, well, what do you mean I've got to look at myself? What do you mean I can't help or control or do anything about my brother, uncle, son, daughter? It's hard, it's hard to get your head round, isn't it? So... I don't know how you, how would you work with it, Victoria? Well, most of the people that contact me um, say, right, can you help my loved one? And they need to go to rehab. They're not getting any help. And I'm like, okay, so what have you tried before? Um, okay, we've tried this, 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 and this, all right. But the point is, it's just reflecting on what Liz has said, really. You, you can't change somebody else. You can only make those changes yourself. So come to me and I meet the person that's using substances. I work with the affected family member. Most of the people that come to me are either mums. Um, sorry, my internet connection has just gone for some. With sons, interestingly, that's my usual um, <laughs> client base. And women with husband partners right so that's a, that's my main client base so what i've got to convince them to do in my friendly chat as i call it because we have an initial conversation is just think about you know themselves and what they can change because actually the models that i trained in back in the day which were the five-step method and craft um community reinforcement and family training they are the, the two different models really but what craft does uh, that type of model is teach family strategies and skills that they can implement and as a practitioner i teach those skills they go and implement them and i hold their hand through that um i also use another model called the concerned other and what what we what we go through in that is you know making those changes yourself so that you can reduce your own stress so that you can live a better life and so that you have the best chance possible of getting your loved one into treatment and you work on yourself and make those changes and i had a, a client recently and she doesn't mind me referring to her but she came to me because of her child's um substance use and it was an adult adult child and her and her husband had basically been uh, you know they'd not left the house for eight years Wow. They were tag teaming with him. He'd been um, in and out of, you know, psychiatric institutions. And, and it was driven by fear. And that fear was really holding them hostage. And the fear was that he was going to die. And when we unpicked, like, the, that fear and, and, and kind of, like, said, okay, you know, what, what you're doing now isn't going to make a difference to that. But what you can do is treat your loved one with kindness, love, co compassion and care, which Melanie said before, um, and set healthy boundaries. 
you know, reduce that enabling behaviour, which is making it easier for your loved one to continue using their substance use, um, you know, withdraw when they're really intoxicated, make sure they're safe and okay, um, and use really positive communication strategies. So don't get entrenched in discussions when they're highly intoxicated. You've got to set the boundaries because a lot of my clients are getting calls all night. That's affecting their sleep. My clients work, you know, and it's about, okay, what feels safe to stop for you? Because not everybody's the same. So I had, you know, a family contacting me and they were like, we've got drug dealers at the door threatening to break my son's legs if we don't pay debts so for them it was like i'm not going to stop doing that because that doesn't feel safe for me to stop that's going to make me more worried and then the next person will say you can't use substances in the house anymore um but and the next person will be like you can drink in the house but you've got to be in the spare room so i work with my clients to kind of figure out what feels safe for them to set around their boundaries so that they can live their lives because you know, they're losing, it's affecting their physical health, their mental health, their sense of purpose. You know, everyone here has said, like, your purpose becomes your your loved one and you lose yourself in it, you know. And I, I've got some absolutely phenomenal clients that I've worked with and, and one of them messaged me the other day and said, oh, look what I'm doing, I've won this award. I didn't realise at the start of the year that I've been living my life again. Um, and you know, and that's because of the work she did. So, so yeah, I hope that answers the question really. Kind of mix that up with some of the impacts there. Pathways to recovery, sorry Lou, aren't there? It's not just mine, it's not just Al-Anon. There's smart recovery friends and family. There are Facebook groups like specifically around family addiction with thousands of people in whatever you need. Some people just want some somebody else that's going through it to listen to a, a, a post, read a post that they've read on Facebook. Some people will want therapy. Some people will want someone like me guiding them through like, you know, these strategies that they can implement to change their lives. Some people won't want any of that. Some people want to go and sit in a group with other people, you know, so there's so many different pathways, but just echoing what what you've already said, Lou, don't be on your own with it. You don't need to. There are so many people affected by it. And, you know, I'm sure that any of us would say if anybody is stuck and they want pointing in the right direction, just drop us a message or something and we'll help. Because, um, yeah. you know, I... I've like I say I don't see the people using substances but I know I get messages every week saying they've stopped using the substances they've accepted help they've gone into re rehab they've done this and you know so it's yeah. it's fantastic and I think you know one of the things that I see that families really struggle with is you know it's it as difficult as it is to go into a 12-step meeting or a, a mutual support group or a rehab as an addict and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here. I think it can be even more difficult for a family member, especially a parent, to admit that they have a child that is using substances or, or drinking because I think the, the instant, the, the thought process is what are they going to think of me as a parent? if I go and, and do this. So, um, you know, I'm really interested to hear from 
from you guys, you know, what what you would say to somebody that is is struggling with that, you know, at the moment that that wants to get help, but it has this this idea that you know people are going to judge and stigmatize and, and put the blame onto them um, for the fact that that they have children or or you know parents or whoever it is that that are the people that are struggling with the substance abuse. Who wants to come in first, me, shall I? <laughs> you go first, Liz. Um, come on, Liz. I think, thank, I think, um, I mean, it, just exactly what you described there, Mel, is exactly what what I experienced personally, and especially given the fact that I was also in recovery and I was a therapist. That was, it was almost like a triple whammy in a way. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Therapist and in recovery, it was like, what? And, um, and, you know, and it's fair to say, I know I said it needed to start with me and I said 12-step recovery, of course, and I loved it, what Victoria was saying as well about naming all of those different routes that you can get help. Of course, you know, therapy was is essential for me and still, and still is, um, you know, groups, all, all sorts of different things but um, that you're not alone. But I think the one thing that I know I work uh, when I work with clients is is just bring them back to how they feel, you know, the, the reality is everything that a parent has done up until that point, they've done it with the best of intentions. It's very, very rare that somebody set out to do anything other than be helpful because they care and love for them. And ultimately, I, it's very, very common that really the biggest fear, which Victoria touched on and what I experienced myself is, you just don't want that loved one to die. So you'll do anything. So the natural instinct is to try and save, isn't it, and help. And um, and it's very, very slowly, as Victoria was saying, it's about being able to start just open up to how it is for for them, what it's like, what their life is like, and you know, and identifying things that they may be doing that you know causes upset or causes them harm or causes them discomfort. And um it's, I think, especially with family members, very co conscious of being really, really compassionate, mm -hmm. being really loving, and just, you know, because it is, um, it is, as I said, it's, you know, it's, it's very usual that they will just feel so ashamed that their child has, you know, or especially their child has grown up like that, but as I said, it's just about being able to let them see what the truth is and mm -hmm. then let them get in touch with that ab abject. I mean, it's just, it's usually really painful. Yeah. I, yeah. One of, one of the, the things I think my mum asked herself a lot was, you know, what could I have done differently? Absolutely. What could I have done better? How could I have stopped this from happening? And, you know, the, the truth is that if you have somebody that, has trauma that is traumatized they are going to find their ways of coping and, and managing that trauma and there is you know nothing that you could do as a parent to stop that coping mechanism becoming addiction um you know it could have been a myriad of other things yeah. um and I think that that is you know one of the things that I I have hope that the message that I've given to, to my mom and, and to the families that I work with is 
this was this was the way that they needed to survive actually and maybe it wasn't such a bad thing because maybe they wouldn't be here if they hadn't done that fair point i i i hear you on that too um and i also think that you know blame and all the rest of it for anybody or any party in it is really not useful is it it's just about what responsibility do I need to take for this and what can we do now? Yeah. Um, I did want to ask something too. I just wanted to ask about 20 years ago or in the, in the old days, there was that couple of words banded about and one of them was tough love. <laughs> and I just wondered where we are on this tough love um, idea of, you know, detaching and not engaging with a family member uh with addiction and yeah essentially cutting them out I think that's what tough love was or putting in such strong boundaries I don't know what what's your sense of that it was a an an old way of looking at things I think um I think that some of the language um you know like hitting rock bottom and tough love and all of that taken out of context um you know can be pretty pretty risky um and i see it i'm on a lot of forums and i see what families are saying and things like that and it's like oh you've got to do tough love you've got to cut them out you've got to do this and um, I, I do a bit of work with um, a man called george charlton and he um, is a craft trainer um, and he says your love has power and I think when we use language like tough love mm. it gets misinterpreted it's like oh well we've got to be tougher we've got to throw them out we've got to do this but it's like I said before you've you know what you feel comfortable with and what you can live with as a consequence to any action you take so if you're going on a forum and everyone's saying throw them out don't let them in your house and actually then something does happen and you didn't feel comfortable with that decision at the time it's just not going to feel good but if you can set a boundary like you know okay it's not working you're living here let's support you to move somewhere else because then we can support you externally, we'll see you once a week, we will buy you food, whatever it is that that family can do, um, then that that's far a far, far better approach. And, you know, and the other one is hitting rock bottom. And I know that, you know, there may be people here that um, use that language because of your own experiences. But the amount of families that have come to me and said, well, they've got to hit rock bottom. And it's like, no, they no, it, do, it doesn't. You don't have to not do anything until your loved ones like on the streets or whatever, because, <laughs> because there's other, other approaches that you can take uh, to support your loved one to try and like be with them um, and show them that love and care and compassion but show it to yourself as well because mm. the self-preservation here isn't there you know it's so exhausting like people come to me and they are so emotionally exhausted that every reaction they have is an emotional one and there's no like you know we're not we're not using the part of our brain um that is helping us strategize things or think clearly um, you know, we're using the emotional part of our brain, aren't we, all the time when we're stressed. So, 
you gotta you gotta give yourself some time to you know build your own resilience up give yourself some space so that you can handle the situation a little bit better and so Lou no tough love yeah it is it's, not a no, no. it's a no no <laughs> okay no. we'll leave that one then that was two decades ago there is there is something though about safeguarding risks that you mentioned victoria about why whole family recovery might not be recommended yeah so um i'll, I'll just bring a little bit of my own personal lived experience in here because I uh, was in a relationship in my 20s with somebody that was, uh, wasn't, I wouldn't describe them as an addict, but they were very physically violent when they drank. Um, and at the time, I thought that was the reason. I know now I'm doing a lot of training and working with a lot of people that have experienced domestic abuse. It was going on anyway, but the, the alcohol was an excuse to be violent. Yeah because he wasn't going out and being violent to his friends in the pub. It was strategic. It was towards me. So he wasn't out of control. So, uh, but, you know, a lot of the time, um, not a lot of the time, but sometimes I'll get clients coming to me, you know, who who are, it, it, I uncover that they are actually living in an abusive relationship. So, so the priority for me there is actually, you know, I've got to say to you, that me working with you to support your loved one into you and your loved one into recovery is not a priority it's not safe you know i can't go and say to somebody go and set healthy boundaries to somebody that's abusive because that's going to increase the risk yeah. so in that case that is a safeguarding risk and the other thing that i've got to mention because i am a safeguarding trainer and consultant as well is children so if there are children in the household us as practitioners we need to be really mindful that there may be well there will be an impact on them there's always an impact there was a great study a, a few years ago called like like sugar for adults and that was about the impact of non-dependent drinking on children and it's well worth a read it's where all the moms and dads that drink that go oh my gosh when i mention it in training you know but but seeing a parent intoxicated impacts on children yeah so it doesn't mean that when parents use substances that they're a bad parent it doesn't mean that every parent that uses a substance you put a referral into children's services but what it means is you know parents families need to put the needs of that child first a child's needs are paramount and if they are under any risk then my priority is that child it isn't the person that's using substances and then i've lost clients you know i'm private now like you people don't want to be referred into children's services and i've got to say to anyone listening it doesn't happen very often you know don't think oh my god i can't go get help because i'm going to get children's services involved it really is few and far between but um as a as a professional that's worked done this work for a long long time and worked directly with children i would just say you know we've got to be cautious about that as well um so yeah that was it really lou okay amazing last question to us all because we're coming up to the hour but what does recovery look like for the family what is a a recovered family? Mel, do you want to go first on this? 
sorry, I was just reading some of the comments, um, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, I think what a recovered family looks like is a family that communicates, um, a family that has boundaries, um, a family that is that can come together with love and compassion without blame, without shame, um, and that can rebuild um, the relationships that have been severed or, or damaged um, as a result without pointing fingers um, and where everybody is on their own journey of recovery. Lovely. They're doing it themselves. Yeah. Great. Love it. Liz? Yeah, I just reiterate everything that, uh, that Mel said there was just that it's interesting that word tough love was or the words tough love was still resonating there and it was actually I, I like to look at it as more of compassionate boundaries yeah. as victoria was saying setting boundaries where you're where you're at you know that you know the ultimate may be that maybe somebody needs to leave the home but that's not necessarily where you need to go to immediately so it's just that sort of you know step by step but yeah absolutely where there's communication where there's an op openness, dialogue, non-judgmental, um, where people are beginning to feel comfortable in their own skin. There's no more walking around in eggshells anymore. Yeah. You know, sort of trying to work out, can I say this? Shall I do that? What about this? What about that? You know, free, freedom, really. Freedom from worry and that, yeah, just... That's what a recovered family is. But also I think as well, a recovered family can be, or a recovered person can be where, of course they have understandable, you know, concern, whatever else for somebody that may still be, um, have un unhealthy behaviors, but at the same time, still be able to live their own life. Um, yeah, um, in a, you know, in a productive way. Fabulous. Thank you. Victoria, anything else to add to that? Um, yeah, yeah, just to kind of build on, well, not build on really, just to reflect back on what Melanie and Liz have said. I think it is all about that communication. I think that is the absolute key. When families can communicate with that real strong emotion and anger and, you know, when they're, when they're able to uh calmly tell somebody how they feel and somebody respond to that um and, and it doesn't always mean abstinence list does it i think you were just touching on that it's like you know this week i've i've spoken to a couple of people who are who are on uh you know prescribed methadone and we want you we sometimes want to push them further but i said what's it like being a methadone they're like they've ch it has changed my life from what I was before to what I was now, it's completely changed my life. And that impacts so wonderfully on the family because, you know, one said my mum's got me back now. So Beautiful. that's it, isn't it? It's just, it's just, yeah. that's it. There's lots of different paths. Yeah. yeah, there always are. And Mel, have we got some questions or comments? <laughs> 
but there aren't any questions. There's a little bit of kind of um, debate going on when we started talking about tough love um, and, you know, boundary setting and detaching. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think is just really important to reiterate here is, is very much what Victoria was saying. This is about meeting people where they are at. And this is about what is okay for you. Because, you know, I know for, for my mom, she got to the point where my addiction was making her so unwell that in order for her to get a little bit of recovery so that she could support me, she couldn't have me around because I was perpetuating that cycle. And I, you know, and it wasn't that she was using tough love. It wasn't that she was kicking me out on the street. It was that she recognized that in order to support, be able to support me, there had to be some detachment. And I think this is where, you know, looking at that codependency side of it comes in. And I think it really is about saying, what is okay for you? Exactly what Victoria said. And what is okay for one isn't okay for the other. And I think when there are people that are advocating a one size fits all, um, you know, that can become really dangerous. Um, so I would say, you know, just go within what, what is right for you, what feels okay, what boundaries feel okay for you to set. And if it's, you know, somebody is telling you to do something and, and it's not sitting right with you, don't do it. Absolutely. It's interesting, actually, because that, um, just coming back in that tough love as well, where there's been um, certainly in more than one occasion where I've, I've responded and put really strict boundaries in to the point where, I've actually had some friends say to me, God, how could you do that? And they could, it could have fallen into the category of tough love. Um, but, um, you know, at, at the time, it was absolutely the right thing to do, you know, and, and it was extreme. And I know it was. And, you know, in the whole sort of, if you look at a continuum, yeah. but um, genuinely it felt the right thing. I know it was the right thing. And, yeah. But not everyone would be comfortable with that. And as you said, and Victoria said, it just depends on where you are. There's no point in pushing somebody towards a, a boundary setting that they're not going to then. And the one thing that somebody said to me as well is whatever the boundary is that you put in, you've got to be prepared to follow it through. Otherwise, it is no, there is no boundary. So that's, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's got to be consistent and clear and all of those yeah. wonderful C's and communicative and all the rest of it. Otherwise, it's not a boundary, is it? Oh. Thank you, ladies. Thank you very much for your wisdom. Um, lovely to ask the questions and um, to get your input on it all. And I just really hope it's useful for anybody either watching it later or on YouTube or tuning into the podcast come and join us in Trauma Thrivers Live on a Thursday night. If you're watching it after, please hit replay. And if you've got any questions or any feedback, we're coming into the group all the time anyway. So please just put them underneath. We'd love to hear from you. But in the meantime, good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And um, we shall see you all again same time next week all right take care for now and um speak soon bye, bye.